Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. It's a Christmas passage. He wants us to know that the light has come. And that's what we believe as Christians, that, that the light has come and that Christmas is a season where we celebrate, Christians do around the globe, that God came to earth in this baby in a manger. And, and we celebrate that hoping in his first coming and waiting for his second coming. That's the whole theme of Advent. And John, in these first few verses, is trying to answer the question, who came? All right, so who is this baby lying in a manger? And there's, I mean, there's a, so many incredible, powerful quotes, um, poems, songs written about this season. I was drawn this week to the words of um, one of my mentors from afar, this guy, Dr. Ray Ortland. And here's what he says about these opening verses. He says, this child is the king to end all kings, saving us from our failure and lifting us to his own justice and righteousness. I love that. Saving us from failure and lifting us to his justice and righteousness. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord, our crucified, risen, and coming Savior. And he will not come back to tweak this problem or that but he will return with a massive correction of all systemic evil forever. It's what I said last week. The theme of these first five verses in John was that the incarnation brings new creation. A little shift to the normal won't do. Christmas is about everything being made new. The entirety of the cosmos is what John uses in Greek. Gets redone, completely flipped, brand new. That's the first key truth in these verses. And, and, and the reality is we need that in this season, especially over the last few years in the pandemic that we've navigated through. It's, a, it's sort of been a season like few others that have made our hearts ache for light and for life. Things have felt dark. Things have felt a bit lifeless. And so the opening of John's gospel is key for us because it hits us right in that key question that some of us, maybe many of us have asked, when will things go back to normal? In the opening of John's gospel, he says, hey, God's light doesn't come to make things normal. It comes to make them new. Normal won't do for Christmas. Completely new is what it is about. And now I realize that there's been a bit of darkness surrounding the last several years and maybe analogous to the way that God's people felt as they were traveling through the wilderness on their way to a destination, didn't know where they were going, but there was a light leading them. And what I wanted to recover here in these weeks leading up to Christmas is that there's a light leading us. We are not left without a guide, even if we are confused at times about where we're headed. And so my prayer today is that we would remember that the light has come and we would be encouraged that the light is still leading. And we're going to do that today through a, a real look at this guy, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And to do it, um, what I want to do is just basically reflect on a few of the key phrases in these two verses. There's no real 
sort of order or points. I just want to show you a few of the phrases that are significant, okay? So here's the first one. There was a man sent from God. Somebody say, sent from God. That's the first key phrase, sent from God. John the baptizer had a ministry with a divine calling. He was sent from God, right? But in contrast to the first few verses in John's gospel, right, he's, he's really sort of down here. I mean, if you just read back through the first five verses, even though he's from God, he is in no way God from all eternity like the word he is in no way with God from all eternity like the word was. He is in no way the light of the world like the word was. So you have this incredible picture of the word and this light. And then all of a sudden, there's a guy, a man sent from John or sent from God and whose name is John. Now, we're going to see that John, I think, is probably more significant than many of us give credit. Um, but he has been sent from God himself with a particular mission and purpose. And we've read about it already. This prophecy from Isaiah, the Old Testament even tells about this guy who would be eating wild locusts and honey and dressed in weird clothing, living in the wilderness. And then all of a sudden in the wilderness, flocks of people would come to him, right? Isaiah puts John as the last and the greatest prophet of Israel. Right? Isaiah penned these words about a voice crying in the wilderness almost 800 years prior to when Mark, the first gospel writer, captured that they were fulfilled in this guy named John at about 50 AD. So 700 BC to 50 AD, and you have promise and fulfillment. Less than 20 years after the resurrection, we know Isaiah had spoke and it had come to pass in John. But not only is he the last prophet, you see in the, the New Testament, he's the first apostle. I mean, that's what this word is. He's sent from God. What's that? He's apostello. He's the apostle from God, the messenger from God. And he had incredible contemporary significance for what he was doing, but crazy eternal significance to the way he was preparing the path of Jesus. I mean, I don't know if you realize this, but John was such a big deal that like thousands and thousands and thousands of people left cities and towns and just went wandering out into the wilderness to find a guy. Like they just went to find him and he's out there talking, teaching, and then baptizing. And he's created such a ruckus that the very governors of Rome who are overseeing the Jewish people at this point, they want his head, right? So they're threatened by him. And so Herod captures him, and then eventually executes him because he had created such a stir that people were wondering, wait a second, is he the Messiah? That's John. And then, I think perhaps more miraculously, just as quickly as John appears on the scene with a massive following. I mean, think about it. How The early church when, when the apostles go around and plant churches in all the surrounding areas in the known world, do you want to know what they find? Disciples of John. Right? I mean, like miles and miles away from Jerusalem or Israel, they find these people who had been baptized by John or had been learning from John all over the known world. John was a big deal. But then as quickly as he appears, he disappears. It's, can you imagine like the influence 
the importance. And then all of a sudden, this guy comes onto the scene to be baptized. And John goes, oh, ministry is done. Spotlight over. He lets Jesus take full center stage. I mean, I can't imagine somebody who knew who he was and who he wasn't more so than John. It's an incredible shift to say, yeah, I've had this amazing success in ministry and then boom, I'm going to give it up because the groom is here and I'm just the best man. Whoa. So I think we have in John the second key truth in these first verses of the introduction. Not only does the incarnation bring new creation, but the incarnation brings new revelation. It brings new insight. And John, as a prophet, is, is revealing something about what is to come and about the very nature and character of God. He opens up, he unfolds, he shows the reality of God, pointing to the one who is the light, saying to all of the crowds, the Lamb of God has come, I'm going to step aside. And what you see in John is that revelation calls for response. Revelation calls for response. He responds clearly to the revealed word of God in Isaiah, and then all of a sudden, with his new revelation, he's calling for an incredible response from all the crowds, and he wants them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, with responding. It's this, it's this incredible moment of change because new information has come, and it means new action for God's people. And what was this new revelation John brought? Well, let's go on our next phrase. It was about that light. It was about that light. Here he goes. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came to bear witness, hold on to that word witness, about the light. Considering John's whole mission and approach to life and ministry came from Isaiah, it might be helpful to look at Isaiah to learn about the light. Seems like that's where he was taking his cues from. So here's what I want to do. I want to I browse Isaiah for some, some insight about the light. Because Isaiah says in chapter 2, as all of Israel is sort of corrupt and unjust, he shouts and says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then, of course, the famous passage that many of us know, the people who walked in darkness have seen what? A great light. Upon those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And that light, he goes down to say, was the one who was a child to be the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace. And then he goes on, of course, to grab his own ministry calling from Isaiah, the voice calling in the wilderness. And just after that, his part's just a little few verses, but then it goes on back to the light. In, verse, in chapter 42, this is God saying to the light, I am the Lord and I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, as a light for the nations. Or then in chapter 49, it's too light a thing. Not like visible light, but too not weighty a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you what? A light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And then maybe 
Some of you are familiar with this great passage in Isaiah 58, where pretty much John the Baptist gets his ministry strategy from. I mean, remember, if you have a tunic, share it. If you have food, give it. Where does he get that? Is this not the fast I choose in Isaiah 58? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house? Is it not when you see the naked to cover him, when, not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And then what shall happen? Your light shall break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall come forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call and the Lord will answer. And you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as new day. And then perhaps maybe my favorite, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you in chapter 60. The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. The sun shall no more go down. The moon will not withdraw itself for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Now, I don't know if John knew exactly how or exactly what the light coming would mean, but he was convinced the light would come and that there was another coming after him who was far greater than him. He was sent to witness about the light. But that gets us to our next phrase, to witness. Somebody say to witness. All right, to bear witness is what John the Baptist came to do. Now, I say John the Baptist, but we could call him the baptizer. Whatever we call him, we don't want to call him missionary Baptist, and we don't want to call him Southern Baptist, all right? He's not any of those Baptists. Um, but he did dunk people in water and baptize them. And I'm telling you that it's interesting that the Apostle John makes so little of the baptizing John's baptism, I mean, this is John's book that he wrote, but he wrote it here in these verses about John. There's two, so many Johns, all right? But, but John, the baptizer, if you think about it, his greatest achievement was the baptizing of thousands of people who quit their corrupt and old ways, their faithless ways, and began to walk in purity before the Lord. It was the best thing he had ever done. And imagine just for a minute, your greatest accomplishment, I mean, maybe it's that you graduated from that school. Maybe it's that you made it so far in a career or a family milestone of some kind. Perhaps it's an act of service that you've done or something you've given or offered to others. The best thing that you pride yourself upon. And then John the Apostle is like, yeah, yeah, not, not, not a big deal, right? <laughs> no, no big deal. But this, the witness that's the thing. The baptizing, uh, the witnessing, that is the thing. 
And he spends, in the first few chapters, 12 occurrences of that word, and then 30 in the entirety of his book. More than one a chapter, he's pointing to this word witness. One scholar put it this way. John's witness is what matters. It was for witness that John came, and nothing else could compare in importance to this. You could really frame the entirety of the book, John's gospel, around this one word. If you sort of peel into it, there are seven witnesses. There's the witness of the Godhead, the witness of the Father, the witness of the Son, the witness of the Holy Spirit. There's the witness of the works of Jesus. There's the witness of the, um, of, of the, of the testimony of John about Jesus. And then finally, not, not least, there's the witness of the people who've received ministry from Jesus. And all of a sudden they cry back about who he is. Now, the Greek is kind of helpful here. I don't want to get into we's, but, but if you think about it, we read this with John as the witness. He is the one with the identity of the witness. But in truth, the emphasis here in the language is not about an identity. It's about an activity. All of the, the grammar points to the activity of witnessing. John came not as the witness, but John came for witness, to do this activity. And so we've got to ask, what does it mean to witness? I think for many of us, um, do you have you read any reviews lately? I mean, we're, it's shopping season, so like Laura and I have been reading online reviews and testimonials. And to be honest, like, they're hilarious. Like, have you ever gotten a crack out of this? Like, I don't know what kind of like algorithm like auto-populates some of these things, but they need a better one because some of the reviews that just sort of like pop up on the homepage of some website or whether it's Amazon, they're just astounding. One, people are really bad writers. Um, but two, the stuff people say um, about the product sometimes completely discredits it. But it's, it's, it's as if many of us think about witnessing like testimonials, right? We've got to sort of say our experience and what Jesus has done for me. But what John is getting at here, and not that that's bad, is something different altogether, John is not so much talking about testimonials. He's talking about to testify. There's a legal air about this whole thing for John. It is the taking a stand to witness in court. And, and listen, it's because from the beginning of John's gospel all the way to the end, he's building a case of all of the different pieces of evidence that you might believe that Jesus the light has come and that he is the light of the world and that he is the son of God come in the flesh. He, he's got proof that he wants to substantiate the claim and say, this is the truth of the matter. Listen to John 20. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, hold on here. Let me take you one step further. We're going to go, we're going to go school. Here's Dr. Leon Morris, preeminent New Testament scholar. And he says, witness establishes 
truth, but it does more. It commits. If I take stand in the witness box and I testify that such and such is the truth of the matter, I'm no longer neutral. I have committed myself. And John lets us see that there are those like John the Baptist who have committed themselves by their witness to Christ. What about you? Have you committed yourself? Are you not neutral? Have you committed yourself to the truth of Jesus? Do you fully believe he is the light of the world? And if you don't, I can't think of a better season of time to continue to ask questions and to explore and get certainty that he is who he said he was. But what about you? Are you committed not just of the truth, but to tell the truth about Jesus as the light of the world. And if you're not committed to tell the truth about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, then what more do you need to, 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 to have a reason to share the hope that you have? If there's hope in you about Jesus, then why would you not let that hope spread through you? If there's peace in you when it comes to Jesus, why would you not let that peace spread through you? Have you committed yourself? What more motivation do you need? Well, motivation is actually the, the next phrase. John's going to reveal to us his motivation, that he came to bear witness about the light. And here, check this. That all might believe through him. I know for some of you, motivation to commit, take the stand, or even say, this is the truth of the matter, what I believe about God. I know that motivation is actually the truth of the matter. <laughs> it's sometimes hard to get motivated or sometimes to have the motivation to overcome an obstacle to do that. Whether it be your own fear or your own worry, you don't know what to say or to do. And I believe that we could read this about John the Baptist and all of a sudden you could go, here we go, pastor ushering us in a new Christmas burden. Or could it be a Christmas blessing? Because for John, it wasn't burden, it was blessing. Now let's go into the grammar here. We only got a few verses. I got lots I can explore. All right. He says, look at this. John wanted all that all might believe through him. Okay. English class 101. My daughter's learning about direct objects. So I'm, I'm here, right? This is Greek 101. Who is him? That all might believe through him. Those two options. I mean, maybe there's more, but it could be Jesus, that all might believe through him, Jesus. Or it could be John, that all might believe through him, John. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you look at John's gospel as a whole, not the context interpreting this individual or circumstance, what you see is that most of the time, you don't believe through Jesus. You believe in Jesus, and so what's going on here is John's motivation is on display. This guy had a passion that all, all might believe through him, through John. Right? So there's something about this guy that sees the, the, the witnessing activity that he was doing in his life and his ministry as blessing that, that somehow, some way, people could believe through me. 
that somehow he could be the means that God would use. Somehow he could be the instrument that God would use. Somehow he could be the voice giving words about this light and this hope and this peace. Somehow John got to the point where he could see, this is blessing and I want more of it. I want as many people as possible to believe through me to be the conduit of light, hope, peace. Some of us are there and some of us are not there. But John is the witness that calls for our witness. He is this incredible example that God could use somebody to tell about his grand story. Now, before we close out, um, I want to I read to you actually one of the position statements of our network because it's beautifully written and it totally highlights here. If you don't know, we're part of the Acts 29 network, which is a church planning network that starts new congregations around the world. There's over 800 of us scattered on, I think, six continents. And it's, it's an incredibly exciting group of people to be a part of. And, and here's one of our fundamental convictions, that we enthusiastically embrace the sovereignty of God in saving sinners. John the Baptist knew this. Like we embrace that God is the one who saves. And you want to know what that does? It frees the messenger to just give the message. It frees someone like John to know his role, to know his part, and it frees you to do the same. So that you can say, God is the one who's going to work change in this person's life, but I could be the means. Like God could use me for this. So let me keep reading. We affirm that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, not on the basis of foreseen faith, but unconditionally, according to his sovereign and good, good pleasure and will. We believe that through the work of the Holy Spirit, God will draw the elect, draw God's drawing, the elect of faith in his son, the Lord Jesus. Graciously, I love this, and effectively, effectually, overcoming their stubborn resistance to the gospel so that they might assuredly and willingly believe. I don't know about you, but I was kind of resistant to this thing. I wasn't like, let's go, giddy up, come on. I was like, hey, hold on. Like, I'm not sure I'm in for all that. And then God, God overcame my stubbornness, my resistance, my doubts, my questions, my hesitations. We believe, it goes on to say, that God's sovereignty in this salvation neither diminishes the responsibility of people to believe in Christ nor marginalizes the necessity and power of prayer and evangelism, but rather it reinforces and establishes them as the ordained means by which God accomplishes his ordained ends. And now they cite a whole slew of verses giving biblical support for their position. Guess what's the first one? John chapter one. John chapter one. Because there was a man sent from God to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. And John was the ordained means through which God accomplished his ordained end. But the apostle John and I think John, John the baptizer, of course, cannot let John have the last word, right? He will not, he, he cannot let John have the last word. And I got to show it to you because John and John 
And I mean, all the Johns are clear, right? That, that, that John was not the light. Do you see how that ends? He came to bear witness about the light. It's emphatic. He was not the light. Okay, let's listen again to Doc, Dr. Morris. John lets us see that there are those like John the Baptist who have committed themselves by their witness to Christ. But he is so bold enough to think that God has committed himself. God has borne witness in a variety of ways, but especially committed himself in Jesus and all that the Son was and did. People, that people have borne witness and have committed themselves is not to be overlooked. But what cannot be missed from the opening of John's gospel and from the story of the gospel altogether is that God is the witness. God is the one who has committed himself. This is the story of the incarnation, that the living God committed himself to flesh, to his own limitations as a man. Right, that the living God committed himself, putting himself into the courtroom, taking stand in the manger and taking stand upon the cross, testifying to his own goodness and grace, his own truth, his own glory, his own light. God went on the dock so that we might see what he calls us to, he has already followed through on. He has witnessed John has witness, and him as a witness calls forth our witness. I mean, our world, I don't know if you've noticed, is kind of dark and confusing at times. There, there are many ways in which we lack peace, broadly and very specifically in our lives. But this is good news, family, that the baker of the world has entered into it to stand on trial because in him is light, as John wrote, and there is no darkness at all in him. Despite what we see that's confusing and troubling, the light has come to make all things new and to reveal to us the very heart of God who would so commit himself in the Lord Jesus so that we could see and know this new revelation and respond to it. Listen, because Christ has committed himself for us, we can commit ourselves to him. And that includes embracing the truth and telling the truth about him. So I'm going to pray towards that end that we would be encouraged and strengthened to share about the Prince of Peace, to share about the God who's made peace between us and him by committing himself in a manger and in a cross. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that your word, your word is so rich. I don't need to comb chapters and chapters of it. Just a few words will do. Thank you that it challenges us. It offers us comfort because it, it tells us about the light. It tells us about the one who is our peace. But it also challenges us to bear witness to the one who is our peace, the one who is the light. And so we praise you, Lord Jesus, for coming into our world. We say the light has come and we ache, we long for you to come again. 
And we ask for strength and wisdom to share with others about the light that has come. We pray this for the advancement of your kingdom and for our own joy in bearing glad tidings, good news to others. In Jesus' name, amen.